we're in this series that we're calling Over, and you'll be happy to know that as of today, it's over, so we're moving on. Uh, whether you're with us in person, uh, or you're joining us at church online, or you're watching on demand, or you're listening to the podcast, thank you for being with us and for tracking along with us. We've been talking about being overwhelmed with life, being overcommitted in our time and energy, being overdrawn financially, being overestimated in our relationships, being overworked and pace of life. Uh, we've talked about all these things. And then last week we talked about technology and specifically social media and our tendency to be overconnected. And we said that with technology and with social media, and I'm a big fan of technology, and I'm engaged on social media to some extent, technology makes a wonderful servant and a terrible master. And we said that with all of our criticism of social media, it actually reveals and amplifies what's already inside of us. It just reveals something. It reveals our insecurities. It reveals what we think um, on how we feel about ourselves. So we looked at a passage um, by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 where he wrote about our freedom in Christ and that we are to use our freedom to serve one another in love. And then we got really practical, as we've tried to do in every one of these messages in this series. And I suggested that, first of all, that we create some no-phone zones. Create some environments and some experiences where we put the phones away. Turn them off and put them away. None of us is so important that we can't turn our phones off for an hour, right? And then number two, I got the same reaction on that today as I did last week. So I'm just kind of curious how that went for you this week. Number two, we talk about the importance of teaching our kids uh, the character of Christ, and specifically the fruit of the Spirit. And we talked about that. And then number three, we said that we would invite the Holy Spirit into our engagement with social media. That for us, living in the 21st century, that's part of what Paul said when he said, follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. This is part of our lives. So I hope that this has gone well for you this week, that it's led to some um, interesting and awkward conversations in your household, and you've powered through and landed on some common ground. I hope you're actually acting on the things that you're hearing, and maybe even finding some new practices and some new thought processes, maybe some new boundaries as you approach technology and especially your engagement online. So if you missed that, I really encourage you to go back and check that out on our website on demand or uh, on the podcast. The big idea in the, this whole over series, we started with this statement a couple months ago in part one, and it's true about every topic we've talked about, and it's true about this topic today, and it's simply this, that what is true is more important than what we feel is true. What is true is more important than what we feel is true. I'm calling today's message overprotective. I'm calling it overprotective because this mindset that we're going to uh, talk about today, this heart position, this behavior, comes from this place, when you really get into it, that is about protecting ourselves. Protecting ourselves from risk, protecting ourselves from loss, protecting ourselves from rejection, from abandonment, from hurt. So today we're going to talk about trust. More specifically, we're going to talk about our lack of trust and how to rediscover trust. Trust is a choice. You have a choice. And all of us are filled or are faced with gaps in information 
What happens when we have a gap in information, we tend to fill that gap with something, and many times it's not the best outlook on a situation. For instance, just going to give you a really, uh, just a really generic kind of example. When someone is late for a meeting, or you're supposed to meet with this person, you're meeting at work at a meeting or a meeting for coffee, and someone doesn't show up when you think they are supposed to show up, what immediately goes through your mind? Do you think, oh my goodness, they're always late, what a loser? Like, what is, where's your default position? Or do you think, oh, they're late, I hope they're all right, I hope nothing bad happened, I hope they just got held up in traffic or something. So, like, do you choose a charitable explanation, an optimistic explanation, or do you fill those gaps with cynicism? And let's be honest, a lot of us fill the gaps with cynicism. We live in a cynical world for a reason. There's a reason people get cynical. I used to think cynicism and age kind of went together, but I'm discovering that a lot of 20-somethings are already, and teenagers are already cynical, because it's really easy to become cynical. But there's actually a reason that we become cynical, but really it impacts and it affects everything that we do. You carry cynicism into your marriage, you carry it into your parenting, you carry it into your friendships, uh, you carry it into your workplace, you even carry it into your church experience, and we all come by it honestly. This is not just about the church today. This, is about the, this isn't just about kingdom of God uh, advancing. This is a very particular kind of thing we're talking about today, and it's really about things like the culture you have in your family. This is the, the culture you have in your workplace, the culture you experience in school, the culture you build with your friends and your circles. So are you going to choose trust, or are you going to choose something else? Are you going to choose cynicism? So the thing about trust and cynicism really boils down to the question, am I believing the best about others? When you've got a gap of information, why are they late? Why do they seem to need my help so much? Why did they make this decision again? Why is this happening again? How, how are you going to fill in your gap? Are you going to fill it in with trust or are you going to fill it in with cynicism? Do you believe the best about your spouse or do you believe the worst? Do you believe the best about your employees or do you assume the worst? Do you believe the best about your coworkers or do you assume the worst? Do you believe the best about your kids or do you assume the worst? And some of you are like, well, man, I, we live in a cynical world for a reason. Like, you should see my kids. You know, I have every reason to believe the worst. You should know my spouse. I have every reason to be cynical. You don't understand the workplace that I'm in. I mean, you should get a real job, Todd, because if you had a real job, you'd have every reason in the world to believe the worst about people. You wouldn't be so judgmental of us. Just to defend myself from this fake argument that I'm having with myself, I worked a second job outside the church for 18 years while we were leading the church. So this isn't hypothetical to me. I get it. But we just think, hey, there's lots of reason to be cynical. Like, am I believing the best about my wife? Am I believing the best about my kids? Am I believing the best about the people that I work with? Am I believing the best about the people I do church with? Am I believing the best about the people who serve in the context of our church? Am I believing the best about the people in my life? Or am I assuming the worst? Here's the thing. Choosing trust is a whole lot better than all the other alternatives, And here's what's true, because remember, what's true is more important than what we feel is true. What's true is that when you believe the best about others, you tend to get the best from them. When you believe the best about others, you tend to get the best from them. Now, when you just decide, okay, I'm not going to be 
that cynical boss. I'm not going to be that cynical supervisor. I'm not going to be that cynical husband, that cynical wife. I'm not going to be that cynical dad. I'm not going to be that cynical American. And, and yes, you need to be realistic. And sometimes there's, you know, there's a problem and sometimes there are issues that need to be dealt with, you know, but it's like, I'm not going to pre-decide because when you believe the best about others, it has an amazing impact on the people around you. Here's what's true about trust. This is going to push some of you because you got huge trust issues. You're like, well, Todd, if you understood my life, if you really knew my story, everybody's let me down. You weren't born in the family I was born into. You're not married to the person I'm married to. You don't have the kids I have. You don't work where I work because if you did, you would choose not to trust too. Here's the thing. Trust is a choice. And suspicion is a choice. Cynicism is a choice. Trust is a choice. You have to decide, how am I going to fill in those gaps of information? How am I going to do that? Am I going to fill it with trust? Because that's a decision. Or am I going to fill it with suspicion? And over time, your response becomes a habit, just a way of life and the way that you see the world. And when you habitually choose suspicion or you habitually choose trust, either way, that impacts your view of the world. It impacts your culture of your family, uh, the culture of your marriage, the culture of your friendships, the culture of all of your relationships. And I know this kind of thing isn't typical, like it's, it's counterintuitive and countercultural, but we, don't we want to be a different kind of people because of the way of Jesus? Like as we follow the way of Jesus, we're okay that we're going to be different from a lot of people we interact with, right? And specifically, we, we're talking about the way that Jesus treats us because of that, we want to be different. We want to choose trust and not suspicion. So the question is, why do we choose suspicion? Why do we choose cynicism? Why do we, so many of us just end up there by default? You fill in the gaps with suspicion because, first of all, maybe you were raised that way. And as a little kid or as a middle schooler, you sat around and you heard your mom and dad talking about everybody critically and negatively, and they filled in every gap with suspicion. And you heard your grandparents thrown under the bus, and you heard your uncles and your cousins thrown under the bus, and you heard your dad's boss thrown under the bus, and his coworkers and your neighbors, and you heard people at church thrown under the bus, and the deacons and the elders and the pastors. Maybe you were just raised that way, so to you it's normal. But let's just all be grown-ups for a minute. That's not normal. And if that's part of your childhood story, it's part of your childhood story, but it doesn't have to define who you are today. You don't have to function that way. In fact, I would just say it's so much better if we choose not to live that way. But maybe you came by it honestly. Second reason you choose suspicion over trust is that you think you're better than the other person. Because there's a part of me that feels like I'm superior to that person who's always, I don't know, showing up late, who's always needing help with the same things over and over again. Like the whole showing up late thing, is, it actually is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. Like, so I'm just like, start getting ready 10 minutes earlier. Like if you were a better person, you just get ready earlier and leave earlier. It's not that complicated. It's not rocket science. Like if you were an astronaut, you would probably be late for takeoff because like, where'd they go? But like, just like, just, it's not... I f- but what I do is I fill in the gaps because I don't know why they're late. And when I do that, what's happening on the inside is I'm being just a little bit judgmental and a little bit arrogant. 
Where's that come from? It comes from thinking I'm a little bit better than that person. And you really chase it down, that gets kind of ugly. Third reason that we lean into suspicion over trust is maybe you've stopped hoping. Like you've lost hope. You've been in this headspace for so long that you've lost hope. Like every guy I'm going to meet is just like every other guy I've ever met. Every woman behaves this way. Kids, man, they can't be trusted. Parents can't be trusted. Every boss is in it for him or herself. Every coworker is eventually going to stab you in the back. It just happens everywhere I've been. And you stopped hoping. The death of hope is where cynicism comes from. Now, this is a Christian church. We are Christian people. We have the Christian gospel. And the good news is a gospel of hope. So the message of the gospel is that Jesus looked our worst enemy in the face, death, and he conquered it and he overcame it. And the one thing that you have absolutely no control over in your life is your death. It is the ultimate defeat, but Jesus conquered it. So our God is a God of hope who says your past doesn't have to define who you are today. Your past doesn't have to define your future. Yesterday doesn't have to be what happens tomorrow. I'm a God of hope. What's happened for some of us, the reason maybe you've grown, you've grown so cynical or the reason you keep choosing suspicion is you've lost hope because when you, here's the thing though, I think you need, if that's the case, you need a fresh encounter with Jesus because when you meet Jesus and you realize that he's a God of forgiveness, he's a God of hope, he's a God of new beginnings and through the life that he offers, it gives you the opportunity to hope again and to believe again and to trust again. So I want to encourage you to kind of drill deep and stop choosing suspicion and start choosing trust. And you're like, well, I'm going to need someone to help me with that. Exactly. So I think when you are a Christian and you decide to really go deep maybe into your story, uh, when you really start to say, okay, I've been betrayed, I've been hurt, I've been taken advantage of, I've been abandoned, I've been rejected. Jesus comes alongside of us and says, yes, but there's hope because I'm bringing a kingdom of life. The kingdom I bring, this kingdom of God is a kingdom of life and it's a whole new value system. So Paul wrote about this a couple thousand years ago in a letter to the church in Rome. First century church in Rome was a group of Christians, kind of like you and me, just trying to figure it out, trying to figure out, okay, like what on earth does this mean for us? Like how do we live this out? Here are some, I love these verses uh, by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. Let's work our way through a few of these. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. He says, don't pretend to love others. Ever been there? Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. So we've all got categories of people. We got people we love. We got people we like. We got people we tolerate. We got people we can't stand. And we try to organize our lives into categories of people. Paul says you've got to really love people for who they are, not for what you want them to be, but for who they really are. Love people for who they are. He says really love them. So we're going to need God's help with this. We're going to take this seriously, and he promises to help. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He helps. Verse 9, hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. You know, as easy as it is to fill the gaps and assume the worst about people, that's not a helpful way to think. Um, so when you think you find something good, he says, hold tightly to it, grab onto it. Verse 10, love each other with genuine affection. So no faking, 
take delight in honoring each other. So this, this really starts with a healthy view of yourself. Because you can't really honor someone uh, if, if you're caught up in your own insecurities, or your own jealousy, or your own bitterness. If that's where you're living, you can't really honor someone else. So you've got to be in a place where you can actually honor and take delight in honoring each other. That this, this thing, it isn't about me. I'll step, I'll step out of the spotlight. I'm going to put you in the spotlight. I'm going to celebrate what God is doing in your life. I'm going to celebrate the good things in your life. So and that is really countercultural. So Paul says, if you're wondering what that looks like, verse 11, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. So we should be busy doing good. We should be busy making the world a better place. We should be busy living out our faith and the values of Jesus' kingdom. And we should throw our heart behind all of that. And this word enthusiastically is a transliteration of the, the Greek word enthotheosmos, which literally means filled with God. Be filled with God. Work hard. Be filled with God as you work. Tackle life with delight. Verse 12, rejoice in our confident hope. Rejoice in our confident hope. Our God is a God of hope, so rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. Now, if you really take these words seriously, um, they could really rock your world. See, I need to pray because I'm not like this by default. I will pick suspicion and not choose trust. I will choose the negative, unhealthy way, not the positive, healthy way. I will choose the self-centered way and not the way of Jesus. I will fake love people. I won't really love people. So i got to roll up my sleeves and get to work. i got to get serious about that. I'm living out the values of Jesus. So i got to pray, and i got to say, God, I don't have the strength to do this. And he's like, great, because I do, and my Holy Spirit will help you. And that's really what Paul is talking about. Verse 13, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. See, this is where one value kind of ties into another, and and some of the things we've been talking about kind of lead to here. Um, Things we talked about a couple weeks ago, we were talking about money, and we're talking about pursuing margin financially. So pursuing margin financially is not so you can sleep better at night. It's not so you can have all the things you want to have and all the experiences you think you deserve. Like if you're always broke, you can't help people. If you're always so like hyper-scheduled and overbooked and overcommitted with your time, you aren't available to help people. So we need to pursue health in these areas, get some margin in those areas of our lives so that in our time and in our money, then we can not only be ready, but we'll be able to practice what Paul calls hospitality. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. When was the last time you really prayed for that difficult person at work? For that mother-in-law that drives you crazy? For the ex that just makes your life so difficult? Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Pray the words that we sing from Numbers 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. 
the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May his favor be upon you and to a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children. In other words, God, I pray that you would be outrageously generous to the people that I can't stand. That's a great prayer. Verse 15, be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. When you're down, you need people who love you. You need to know that they're praying for you, that they're supporting you. When you're celebrating, when something awesome happens, rather than be jealous and petty and bitter that someone else is having success, we want to celebrate with them. We want to celebrate when we've got something to celebrate, and we want to weep when there's something to weep over, and we want to do that together in community. That's how the church is supposed to function. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Verse 16. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be proud. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. (laughs) And don't think you know it all. Did you know that was in the Bible? Huh. Don't think you know. Oh, I know exactly what happened. Oh, I know exactly what she's like. I know exactly why he's that way. I know exactly what's going on in that situation. Here's why they're such terrible people. You got an hour? Let me tell you. And why they deserve all the bad things that are happening to them. Let me, I know. Don't think you know it all. Don't fill in the gaps like that. Because after all, trust is a choice. So the question is practically, how do I choose trust? How do you actually do that? I'm going to suggest four things I wanna, that have helped me be more consistent in choosing trust. So I hope you'll find it helpful too. Number one, we're going to get super practical. Number one, treat the people closest to you like perfect strangers. And you're like, what? Like Larry and Balky? No. <laughs> I mean, you can do a dance of joy if you want to. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry. I just, aided, I just dated myself there. So yeah. So let's just back up. Sorry, I took myself off track. Treat the people closest to you like strangers. I put, inserted the word perfect strangers and it took me down this path that I just couldn't get back from. Treat the people closest to you like strangers. And I know this sounds weird, but here's, here's what I mean by this, okay? We all have this thing. This is this phenomenon that I've noticed in our society it, where we have a tone of voice that we use exclusively for our family or in our home. And you know what I'm talking about. Um, it's a combination of impatience and irritation and aggravation and frustration and condescension. Oh, you're like, oh, now I know what you're talking about. I'm not sure what to call it, so I'm just going to call it family voice. Okay? The reason that it's family voice is because if you use this tone of voice with, at work tomorrow, you'd be packing your stuff at the end of the day. If you use it at a restaurant today after church with the wait staff, the manager will probably ask you to leave and not come back. If you're like, oh, I don't really have a family voice, ask your kids because they know they can probably imitate your family voice. And you laugh now, but it ain't so funny when it comes out of them. How do you address the family voice? How do you change that? How do you even learn to hear it when it's coming out of your mouth? For me, my story is that my wife called me on it over 20 years ago, and she's like, you have a tone that you use. I'm not stupid. 
I'm like, of course you're not. It's like, could have fooled me. I wasn't a fan of that conversation, and we've had it many times since, but it has helped me. I didn't ask for the accountability, but I got it anyway. She points it out still when she hears it from me when I don't hear it from myself. So accountability with somebody is an effective way, and I would say a necessary part of this. So I think another way to get over a family voice is to treat the people closest to you like strangers, because think about this. If you're meeting someone for the first time, maybe today, while you're here today, you're going you're gonna to meet somebody that you've never met before, and you're going to be at your absolute best behavior, right? You're going to remember, oh yeah, we aren't shaking hands, but nice to meet you. Um, you're going, how awkward is that? You're going to listen when they speak. You're going to look them in the eye. You're not going to talk down to that someone you just met. You aren't going to be suspicious. You're not going to lord it over them and tell them, well, yeah, nice to meet you too, but let me tell you how well you're wrong about that. And you're just going to accept them at face value. That's what we do with strangers. But once a person is no longer a stranger, once they've become, uh, they're no longer a new acquaintance, now they're a friend, or, or now they've really gotten to know each other, or let's just up the ante. Now you've dated. Now you got engaged. Now you married that person. Now you got kids. And someone taught them to communicate. Who thought that was a good idea? And now you just kind of forget about the good behavior and it brings out family voice. So treat the people closest to you like perfect strangers. What's that look like? Well, let's say tomorrow morning um, well, not tomorrow morning because it's school break week. So let's say next Monday morning, just before your kids head out to school, uh, your 10-year-old was supposed to empty the dishwasher. And the dishwasher, surprise, surprise, is not emptied. How do you interact with that? Oh, I see you haven't emptied the dishwasher. Is there something I can do to help you with that? And your 10-year-old looks at you and says, Oh, no, blessed Father, I beg your forgiveness. I've been forgetful once again. Let me serve you by emptying the dishwasher while the bus drives by. Now you can drive me to school. And you get into this politeness battle with your 10-year-old. <laughs> Could go like that, I suppose, but um, probably not. I'm just, so I'm just saying, in that way, let's treat people closer to us like perfect strangers on our best behavior. Number two, this is actually a little more serious. Find the most charitable explanation. Anytime there's a gap in information, don't assume the worst. Don't assume that person's out to get you. Don't assume they're out to make your life difficult. Like, even if they do make your life difficult, don't assume that that's their agenda. Let's just learn to find the most charitable explanation. Try to find something charitable rather than cynical. And maybe as a place to start, just learn this one phrase as a default, because this works in like every situation. Every time you're tempted to fill in the gaps, okay? Every time your son doesn't empty the dishwasher, every time your daughter said she was going to be home at 10 and she comes home at 10.05, again, just assume this, and maybe we can practice this, okay? Just assume I'm sure there's a perfectly good explanation. Just memorize that. In fact, let's say that together, okay? Uh, say it with me. I'm sure there's a perfectly good explanation. Thank you for playing along. So even if there's not, if you start from that place, it'll go a lot better. It's, it's the groundwork to move somebody from being on the defensive to maybe even taking responsibility. I'm sure there's a perfectly good explanation. Let's talk about this. Number three, 
think about how you want to be treated. Think about how you would prefer to be treated in this situation. Because like, I don't like walking into a meeting late and everybody thinking in their thought bubbles, he's always late, he doesn't care, we're not a priority, that he doesn't even care about me. I would like people to believe the best about me. So when someone shows up late, I don't want to choose suspicion. I don't need to fill in the gaps of what I don't know. I want to choose trust, so I need to remember, how do I want to be treated in this situation and treat them accordingly? So remember how you'd like to be treated, because this is the trap you get into in your marriage. It's like, well, if you treated me that way, then I would treat you this way. And they're thinking, well, if you treated me this way, I would treat you that way. And it's a stalemate. So think about how you would prefer to be treated. Number four, remember how God through Christ has treated you. This is why we need this for the church. This is why this should be our culture at Faith Community. This should characterize the marriages and families and workplaces for everyone who calls Faith Community their church. This is how we should treat each other inside the church and beyond the walls of the church because that's how God in Christ has treated us. This is how we are to treat everyone that we interact with. Listen, we all got stuff in our lives. We all got things we aren't proud of. Maybe nobody should be proud of. We've all made mistakes. We've sinned. We could stand before God someday and God could say to us, look at this. Oh, look at that. Look, ooh, look, that's a bad one there. Look at that one. Oh, look at this one over here. You thought was, it's in the shadows over in the corner. You thought you were hiding that one. Ah, spotlight. Look at that one. He could do that. He could hold that over our heads and make us answer for all that. But the gospel is good news through Christ that he's chosen to forgive us. Scripture says he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He's forgiven me. He's forgiven you. Not because we cleaned up our act. It's because he's forgiven us that I'm motivated to clean up my act. And we get it backwards. So when I think about how God through Christ has treated me, that he forgives me, that he loves me, that he sees me as worthy, that he thinks the best about me, how can I not extend the same mercy, that same forgiveness, that same grace, the same trust to my wife, to my kids, to my family, to the people I get to serve with, the people I do life with? How can I then choose suspicion over and over and over again when Jesus has chosen trust and he's shown us what it is to trust? See, God made a radical decision as far back as the Garden of Eden that even though uh, we'd rejected him, even though we'd made decisions that created this massive space between, this distance between us and God, our Heavenly Father, even then, he set into motion this plan that would culminate with Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago, all to forgive us, to redeem us, to restore us to relationship, and to restore value to our lives. Jesus called it abundant life. And so this high standard is for all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus as people who are forgiven. Some of you have been longing for that day. You've been longing for the day that you walk into a room and your parents don't choose suspicion. They choose trust. 
Some of you know it when you go home from church and your husband and your wife is going to be suspicious of what kind of crazy teaching you've been listening to this week because your spouse doesn't even come to church and you know when you get home there's, there's just going to be suspicion. He's going to choose suspicion. She's going to choose suspicion. It's your call to choose trust. Maybe you're being called to begin to do your part to change the culture in your family, in your life, because it starts with you. It starts with me. Because when we believe the best about others, at work, at home, in all of our relationships, eventually tend to get the best from others. Rather than assuming the worst, let's call out the best. There's a new day. It's today. There's a kingdom advancing. It's a kingdom of God, and we're part of it. It's a different kind of culture. We get to establish that culture right here in our church, in our homes, in our families, and eventually it will overflow and leak out into our community. So let's choose trust. That's our choice. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just want to pray for all of us today because this is a hard teaching. There's, there's not, a, not an easy way to, to address it um, and skirt all around it and avoid it, but this is a challenging teaching for all of us. And we don't want to just like adjust the culture and affect the culture just to adjust the culture. We want to be part of this movement, this movement that Jesus started, this movement that is the kingdom of God. We want to be part of what Jesus is advancing in the world. In advance, he wants to advance in our lives and through our lives and in the, uh, in the life of this church. So give us strength, give us courage, give us the boldness, give us confidence to choose trust, to be the optimist when we're surrounded by pessimists, to be agents of hope in a world that is full of cynicism. Maybe to be that one light, even in our own families, it's going to choose the best rather than assume the worst. May that be true of us. May we become people who assume that there's a perfectly good explanation. And we're just going to trust again and again and again. I pray that this would describe us as a church, that it would be true of all of us in all of our circles of influence and our circles of friendships and relationship. This isn't about us. This isn't about so we can look good before anybody, but this is about bringing glory to the name of Jesus. So may the things that we um, live our lives by, the values that we live by, the things that we pursue, may they reflect the values of Jesus. May that be true of us in Jesus' name.